Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, good morning, WCC. Thank you, George. Uh, I would just ask you also to just add on for prayers for sick folks. We've got a lot of families. It's surprising, actually, the crowd we have today because we have a lot of families that are sick and, and isolating. So just be in prayer for them. I know we've got folks traveling as well. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. While you're turning there, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but I, I told my wife this morning, I'm just so ready for the fall. I think it's the heat. We, went, we had a, a scrimmage. <laughs> I'm ready for like 50 degree nights and like highs in like the 60s and leaves changing. I'm just, I'm ready for high school football on Friday and college football on Saturday and pro football on Sunday. You know, you can tell I have a diversity of interests. All right. So Luke 20, actually, we, we st- I started a sermon series on the parables of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke uh, back in the summer. We were meeting outside, we, that's when I, and today is going to be the last sermon in that series. So this is the last parable of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke, and today we're going to look at the, the parable of the wicked tenants. Uh, I did want to give credit where credit is due to two pastors who have helped me a lot with this. Ken Bailey, I've talked about him before, and also a guy named Robert Rayburn. Uh, They've helped me understand the parable uh, a lot better. Uh, Before we look at the parable, I do want to give some context about what's happening at this moment. Uh, This is the final week before Jesus was crucified. So when I preached last, we looked at at the parable of the ten minas in Luke chapter 19. Immediately after that, Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Remember that where they they said to him, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then after that, Jesus goes into the temple with his disciples and he cleared the temple area because he told them, he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. It had become just this marketplace with haggling and cheating and conniving. And Jesus was very angry and he really, he went at the merchants with whips and he and his disciples just shut down the temple area for a period of time. And so the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders were not happy with Jesus. They were very angry with Jesus. And in the first part of Luke chapter 20, they go after Jesus and they ask him, you know, they said, tell us by what authority you do these things. Okay. So this is the context of what is happening when Jesus tells this parable. It's only a few days before he is going to be crucified. And what he is going to do in this parable is give the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people a stern warning and a prophecy up concerning them. He was going to bring a prophecy about God's judgment. And one of the things you'll notice if you go through the Gospels is that as Jesus gets closer and closer to the cross, his parables, his teachings become more and more serious and more and more stern. And a lot of them are warnings. A lot of them are warnings about God's judgment. Before we get to the parable, I want you to see one thing about how Jesus' hearers would have understood this parable. And the main thing I want you to see, we're gonna, we're gonna, the parable is about a vineyard. And the main thing I want you to see is that, that these people would have understood that when there's talk of a vineyard, that was referring to Israel. 
Okay, I want you to, this is from Isaiah 5, you don't need to turn there, but let me just read you some portions from Isaiah 5. And so Jesus' audience would have understood, when he's talking about a vineyard, he's talking about Israel. So this is Isaiah 5, it says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard, that's Israel. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. It's talking about God. God dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. So he planted Israel. He planted the people of Israel. It said he built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. So he planted Israel with the expectation that it would yield fruit. That Israel would yield the fruit of righteousness, of holiness, of trust in God. So it yield that fruit. But it said, but it yielded not good grapes, it yielded wild grapes. It yielded, you could say, sour grapes. Or if you've ever bitten into fruit, that's just disgusting. That's what God is saying about the fruit of Israel. Okay? So then in Isaiah 5, he says what he's going to do. And he's going to bring judgment on Israel. This is a warning. This is Isaiah 5, 5. He says, now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. That's what he's saying about Israel because of their rebellion and disobedience. But then he says in, in Isaiah 5, 7, he says clearly, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, for the vineyard is the house of Israel. And he said this, he said, he looked for justice, he looked for the fruit of justice, but behold, bloodshed. So it produced this sour fruit of bloodshed. He looked for the fruit of righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So when, when Jesus' audience would have heard this parable about the vineyard, they knew that he was talking about Israel. And they knew these prophecies. There's another one in Jeremiah that says about the same thing. Okay. So this prophecy says, in the context of the whole book of Isaiah, again says that if Israel, the vineyard, does not produce the fruit of righteousness and obedience and faith and love, that judgment is coming. Okay? So this is what the, the people would have heard when they heard about this, this parable of the vineyard. All right, let's read Luke 20. I'm going to go ahead and read straight through nine, verses 9 to 19, and then we'll break it down uh, verse by verse. So this is Luke 20, beginning in verse 9. So it says, and he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And we'll talk about this, but clearly this is God planting the vineyard of Israel. Verse 10, when the time came, he sent a servant, the owner sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him and they saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, when the crowd heard this, the Jewish leaders in particular heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, 
And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And then verse 19, we see the leaders understood what Jesus was saying. Verse 19, it says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour. They sought to arrest him and kill him. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Okay? So that's the parable. Let's go through it quickly, verse by verse. Verse 9 says, Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. So there is the owner of this vineyard. Vineyards were usually planted on the sides of hills. Usually the, the flat land was for like for uh, wheat and grain and that type of thing. But on the sides of the hills, that's where they planted a vineyard. So the owner of this vineyard, he plants a vineyard. And he owns this, and, but he lives in a far country, so he leases it out to the vineyard to tenants. This was common back then. And the tenants then would make payments to the owner, and they would make payments not in cash, but by the harvest, by the crops. They would give some of the, the fruit back to the owner as payment. So in this day, it was actually a great privilege to be a tenant of a vineyard. It wasn't just like a day laborer. This was, it was a privilege to be a tenant of the vineyard because you got to share in the profits. It wasn't paid minimum wage. You got to share in the profits. So there's a big motive to produce a big harvest because, again, you would get a lot of the profits. Now, back in those days, I know this sounds crazy to us, but back in those days when a tenant signed a lease, he was actually required to pay the landlord. He was actually required to pay rent. I know, I know that's crazy to us, but back then they actually had to abide by the terms of a contract. So that was what they would expect when they heard this, all right? So in the parable, remember, the vineyard is Israel. And who is the owner of the vineyard? The owner of the vineyard is God. He's the one who planted the vineyard. He's the one who planted Israel. Remember Isaiah 5, God is the owner. The tenants, who then are the tenants? Who's the ones that are taking care of the vineyard of Israel? Who are are the ones who are responsible for fruit being produced in the vineyard of Israel. The tenants are the leaders of Israel. They were the Jewish leaders who were the ones who were in charge, who were responsible for caring for the vineyard. All right, verse 10. When the time came, he, the owner, sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. So when the time came, this is harvest time, They weren't required to pay monthly. They were required to pay at harvest time. So when the time came, harvest time, this was the right time, the owner was to be paid by the tenants. As I said, the the payment would be some of the fruit of the vineyard. And as I said, from from Isaiah 5 and other places, you can think of fruit as, in in the context, we're talking about Israel being obedient, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of repentance and faith. So what it's saying is, what Jesus is saying by the parable, is that God expects Israel and its leaders to produce the fruit of righteousness. So the owner sent a servant to collect the rent. This was not unexpected. This was right. The owner is God. He sends a servant. Now, who are the servants? So think about it. who Who in the history of Israel has God sent to the vineyard, to the people of Israel, telling them to produce fruit? Who are the ones that God tells? It's the prophets. Those are the ones that God sent to Israel to produce fruit. So the, so the servant who's gone to, to collect the rent, these are the prophets of Israel. These are the ones sent to Israel to speak God's word to Israel. Again, we could say the prophets were the servants sent to call the people to produce the fruit of repentance, righteousness, and love for God. 
All right, verse 10, still in verse 10, it says, but the tenants beat him, they beat the servant, and sent him away empty-handed. So this servant shows up to collect the rent, and instead of giving him the rent, the servant the rent, the tenants beat him up and cast him away. Verse 11 and 12, it says, and he, the owner, sent another servant, there's another prophet, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 12, and he sent a third servant. This one also they wounded and cast out. So at this point, I think the audience listening to this parable that would have thought would have been thinking this. What is the problem with this owner? What is the problem with the owner? He is far too patient. He is far too kind. He's far too forgiving. What they're thinking is, and this is what happened back then, the owner should send a hit squad to the tenants and collect the rent. That's what they would do. If they didn't, if they didn't pay the, the rent, the owner would re- literally send a band of 20 or 30 guys with weapons to take care of those guys, to get what was due And so the audience hearing this would have said, what's the problem with the owner in this story? He's too forgiving. He's too kind. He, he should discipline them. He should give them a beating, maybe even bring the death penalty on them. Okay, And then take the produce and kick those guys off the land. That's what the audience would have been thinking. You know what? They were thinking that the owner was way too kind and forgiving. That's really the way we should think about God too. That he is way too forgiving and kind and gracious to us who are rebellious and in defiance against him. He is far too kind and patient in dealing with us rebellious sinners. All right, verse 13, it says, The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. It could be translated, perhaps they will be, be ashamed by seeing him. They will be shamed in front of him. So he says, the, the, the owner says, I will send my beloved son. The phrase beloved son can also be thought of as, now think about this, one and only son or only begotten son. So God is the owner of the vineyard. God sends his son. Who's the son? Clearly it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the son in the parable. And it says, verses 14 and 15, But when the tenants saw the son, saw the beloved son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Remember, the vineyard represents Israel. So Jesus is teaching in the parable. Remember, this is just a few days before he is crucified. Jesus is teaching in the parable that the Jewish leaders, he's prophesying that they were going to kill the beloved son, the son of God. They were going to kill Jesus so that they could be in charge of the vineyard of Israel. Jesus was prophesying in the parable that the leaders did not want to be under the authority of God. They didn't want to be under the authority of God's son. So what did they do? They killed him. And this is exactly what happened in real life. Just verse 15 says, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Only a few days after Jesus spoke this parable, the Jewish leaders arrested Jesus. They threw him outside the city gates of Jerusalem. They took him outside and they nailed him to a cross and murdered him. So the Jewish leaders did exactly what Jesus prophesied that they would do. Now, the Jewish leaders had a history of abusing God's prophets. When God sent his prophets, just like in this parable, when God sent his prophets, the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people almost always refused to listen to the prophets. And they not only refused to listen, many times they even killed the prophets. 
read about this in the book of Hebrews. You can see it in Isaiah and Jeremiah. These prophets sent by God to the people, and they don't listen, and many times they abuse and kill the servants. And that's exactly what they did with Jesus. Same thing. There's a history of Israel. When I first became a Christian, I thought that Israel was like this wonderful nation and these godly people. And then you read through it, and you're like, there's hardly any time where there's actually any righteousness in the nation. It's just a constant rebellion and defiance against God. And then verses 16 to 18, Jesus gives a warning to the Jewish leaders about what God will do to them after they kill the Son of God. So in the parable, Jesus says this about the owner of the vineyard God. Verse 16, it says, He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then when they heard this, the audience heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So Jesus is prophesying that after the Jewish leaders kill him, then God will bring judgment on the Jewish leaders. Jesus is prophesying that through the parable. He says, and he says they will give the vineyard, God will give the vineyard to others. Who you know he's talking about the others? It's the Gentiles. He's saying that God will take away the vineyard, the kingdom, and give it, take away from the Jewish leaders and give it to the Gentiles. And after 40 years after Jesus was crucified, within a generation, Jesus said that. He said, this generation will not take place until all these things take place. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. In the year 70 AD, God used Rome to utterly destroy Jerusalem. He destroyed Jerusalem. In my view, I think the church has minimized the importance of 70 A.D. and the destruction of Jerusalem. And that happened immediately within a generation after Jesus was crucified. That's what Jesus prophesies here. Because when God destroyed Jerusalem, think about this, the sacrificial system ended. There is no sacrificial system in Judaism today. It ended. The Jewish temple was destroyed. There's no, there's no priesthood. They have rabbis, but there's no priesthood. There's no, there's, the entire Old Testament system was abolished. It happened immediately as Jesus said it would, and it happened within a generation as he said it would. And I, like I said, I just think we under, underappreciate the importance of, of the destruction of, of Jerusalem. So in other words, God took away the vineyard from the Jewish leaders, and he gave the vineyard to others, to Gentiles. And that's the way it is today. God's people throughout the world, there are plenty of Jewish people who worship Jesus. But the vast majority of people who worship the Lord are Gentiles. And that's exactly what Jesus prophesied here. Verse 17 is a quote actually from Psalm 118 verse 22. It says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So the prophecy said that the Jewish leaders, the builders, would reject the cornerstone. What does that mean, reject the cornerstone? Well, in those days when they built a building out of stone, they would find a stone that was perfectly level on the bottom and perfectly level on the top, and also it had perfect right angles. And so what they did, they put the cornerstone down, and then when it has these right angles, the cornerstone determines the shape of the building. If the cornerstone is off, then the entire building's off. But the cornerstone they found had its perfectly right right angle, and then the entire building is based off the cornerstone. So the cornerstone is the foundation. It determines the shape of the building. Well, Jesus is the cornerstone of the kingdom of God. 
He is the foundation. He is the foundation of the church. And what this prophecy from Psalm 118, 22 says is that the builders, the Jewish leaders, would reject the Messiah. They would reject the cornerstone. But the building of God's kingdom would still be built. It would still be built. It would just be built without those Jewish leaders. Okay? So that's, what, that's exactly what Jesus prophesies. He explains it to them, and, and it is fulfilled. Verse 18 says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the stone, again, is the Messiah, and anyone who falls on or trips over that stone. This is a warning of judgment. What Jesus is saying is that the Messiah, Jesus, who's the cornerstone, if anyone was tripped up by him, by tripped up by his teaching, by his message, then they would be under judgment. They would be broken into pieces. And if the Messiah, the cornerstone, fell on anyone in judgment, destruction was coming. Either way, destruction was coming, right? For those who do not bow the knee to the Messiah, the cornerstone. So the picture is this. The rabbis had a little saying. If you imagine a little, little fragile clay pot, you ever seen a little, just a little fragile clay pot? They had this saying talking about, about the, the stone. It said, if the pot falls on the stone, imagine a big cornerstone if a pot falls on the stone, woe to the pot. And if the stone falls on the pot, woe to the pot. In other words, it doesn't matter what falls on what, the pot is going to be broken. And that's what Jesus is saying with this, with this prophecy. Destruction is coming. Listen, if you try to fight the Messiah, if you try to go war against Jesus, the cornerstone, you're doomed. You're doomed. Destruction's coming. That's exactly what Jesus says here. And then verse 19, as I said, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they had perceived, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they wanted to arrest Jesus, but they didn't do it at that time they feared, because they feared the people. But they did it exactly when Jesus wanted it to be done. Exactly. It fulfilled everything. So the Jewish leaders knew that this parable was a warning to them. And the saddest part to me is, and we see this in our own day, This warning is given. Instead of repenting, what is their response? It's anger. They want to kill him. That's the response. Just like their forefathers had killed the prophets, they didn't want to hear Jesus' warning about God's coming judgment on them. All right, so that's the parable. Now, for the rest of our time, I want to look back at a couple of verses. I want us to think a lot about these. Look back at verses 14 and 15. It says, but when the tenants saw him, saw the son of the owner, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. I want us to think about these verses quite a bit. Because in the parable, the tenants wanted to kill the beloved son. So that, why? So that they could be in charge of the vineyard. So that they would not have to be under anyone else's authority, including the owner or the son of the owner. They wanted to be the owners of the vineyard, not God. They wanted to be in charge. And they were willing, in effect, to kill God, to kill God's son, so that they could run the vineyard. What is Jesus telling us in this? He's not just talking to Jewish leaders. He's talking to us as well. Jesus is describing the unbelieving mind. He's describing what people think about God if they're not under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if they haven't been born again. Jesus is saying, it's true about all of us in our natural condition, that we want to be in charge, not God. 
We don't want to be under God's authority. We want to own the vineyard of our lives. And we want God to get out of the way, to mind his own business, and to leave us alone. That's exactly what happened in the parable. And you know what? We'd kill him if we could. Now, that sounds harsh. And many of us say, I don't think like that. But it's really true. This is the motive of the unbelieving mind. We want to get rid of God. We want to get rid of his son. Sometimes you hear people talk about man's quest for God. You know, you'll hear university professors talk about there's this universal quest for God. That is absolutely ridiculous. As Romans 3.11 says, there is no one who seeks God. There's no one who, what I mean by that, there's no one who seeks the true God. In our natural condition, no one seeks after the true God. Unless the Holy Spirit works in a person's heart, no one seeks after the true God. And that's what Jesus is saying about the men in the vineyard. They killed God's son, and they would kill God the Father too if they could, just so they could own the vineyard. People do not seek after the true God. They'd rather kill him. There is no quest for the true God. The various religions of the world, the philosophies of the world, they're not ways of searching after the true God. The various religions and philosophies are a way to escape from God. And so what do people do? They make up fake gods and they make up false philosophies so that they can be in control. So that they can run the vineyard. Even people, and this is a sad part too, even people who call themselves Christians, when you begin to drill down deep into their lives, you find that they have the similar thought. Really what they often believe in is some form of deism. Yeah, there may be some God out there, but I can pretty much run my own life. I can run the vineyard of my own life. And I want God to stay away and mind his own business most of the time. They think that way. Many church folks are like this. There's a sociologist named Christian Smith, and he's described it as this way, as moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's, it's moralistic. So that there's a system of right and wrong. It's not, it's not really an absolute right and wrong. It's mostly about being nice. But these, these people think that there is a right and wrong. It's mostly about being nice And they think this, they think that most people generally are good, contrary to what the Bible teaches. They think that most people are good, and most pretty much everybody's going to heaven except for really bad people like Hitler. Okay, so it's it's moralistic in that way. It's also therapeutic. Again, the whole point is they want to run the vineyard of their own lives. They don't want to be under someone else's authority. And And this view is therapeutic. The main point for these people of religion, of going to church, is therapy. It's about helping me be a healthier person, believing in God, going to church. It's not centered on God and his glory. No, it's on my well-being. It's about self-care. It's about therapy for me. That's what it's about. So it's moralistic and it's therapeutic. It's also deistic. What I mean by that is, yeah, God may be there, but it's not like God is really active in the world. Pretty much God stays out of my life. Unless I need him, unless I'm in a bind, and then I call on him, and I expect him to help me out. I expect him to grant me my wish, right? That, that is often the view, and again, of many people, even in the church. And in that system, it's all about me running the vineyard of my life. Occasionally, God can serve me, but I'm not here to serve God. I'm, I'm, I'm not just a servant in God's vineyard. No, I am in charge of the vineyard. I'm not here to produce the fruit of righteousness and love for him for his glory. I'm not serving God in his vineyard. No, I'm in charge. That's the way most people in the world think. And it's true whether the person is religious or secular. 
People will believe, in fact, one of the common ways to do this is people will believe that there's no God at all. And then if that's the case, then I can run the vineyard all by myself. Or they'll believe that God is just an impersonal force, you know, karma, or new age believe in some impersonal power. If he's impersonal, then I can just tap into that, right? I can tap into that force, you know, Star Wars, Yoda, you know, the force surrounds us, you know. In the rocks and in the trees it is. That, that's, we like that. That's a force. Hey, in Star Wars, does anybody have to live for glory for somebody else? No, it's the force working in me. Helps me. It's all about me being in control. So that's, what, that's the, the, the way people think. Or we maybe create a personal God, but he pretty much stays out of my life because I run the show. I run the vineyard. And in that way... God is controlled. God is tamed. And I get to take his place. I get to be God of the vineyard. At the very beginning of creation, you know what? It wasn't a vineyard. It was a garden. But something very similar happened. God told Adam and Eve that they could eat the fruit from any tree in the garden. Anyone. There there may have been thousands of trees in the garden. And he said you can eat from the fruit from any tree in that garden. Except one. You eat from one tree... In that garden, and you'll die. And you know what they did? You know where they looked? They looked at that tree. They didn't look at the other thousands of awesome fruit-bearing trees. They looked at that tree. And they said, I want that one. I don't want you telling me what to do. You know how the devil, the serpent, persuaded Adam and Eve? Remember when Eve told the serpent, Eve said it right. She said, God said, if we eat from that tree, we'll die. And here's how the serpent responded in Genesis 3-4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And this is what Eve wanted to hear. And you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. You will be like God. You'll be God. The universal quest for God. Give me a break. People aren't seeking the true and living God. They want to be God. We want to be God. We want to be God of the garden. We want to be God of the vineyard of our own lives. So people either make up philosophies to get rid of God or they make up a false God they can control. People aren't searching for the true God. They're not trying to find the true God. Do you think people search for a God that they can bow down to? Do you think they're searching for a God that they have to submit to, that they have to give up the controls of their life to? Do you know why people reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? you know why people reject Christ? Ultimately, it's not because of lack of evidence. Listen, I can tell you this. I love talking about proofs for the Christian faith. If you have questions about Christianity, if you have difficult questions about the existence of God or hard questions about the faith, I love talking about that. Please come talk to me. I love talking about difficult questions. So, So we need to have evidence. We need to talk about questions. But what I've learned is this, the real reason people don't believe in the gospel is not because of a lack of evidence. You can look around the world and see that this world and this universe was made by a very smart, very powerful, amazing God. You can look around and see that. You can also look into the evidence of the resurrection in Jesus. I encourage you to do that. And the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely overwhelming. It is there. People don't reject Christianity ultimately because of a lack of evidence. They reject Jesus for one reason. They want to run their own lives. They want to run the vineyard. 
And they're not going to give over the controls of their lives to God. I'm going to paraphrase a pastor I mentioned earlier named Robert Rayburn. I'm just going to paraphrase him for a while. To know the true God, to know his love, to be in fellowship with the true God, you have to give over the controls of your life to him completely. You must bow the knee to him. You must accept the fact that you are only a tenant in God's vineyard. In fact, you must even rejoice that you don't run the show, that you don't run the vineyard. You must rejoice that God is the one in control and you're only a servant in his vineyard. But here's the thing. This is the awesome thing. To be a servant in God's vineyard, to be a servant in God's vineyard is the greatest privilege possible. To serve the sovereign, holy God of the universe, the only true and living God, to serve him and be loved by him, it's the greatest joy. It's the absolute greatest privilege to be loved by this God, to give over the controls of your life to him. And in this parable, Jesus is telling us that we don't want to give up control, that we want to be in control of the vineyard. We want to run things. We don't want God. And that's why people don't believe, because they say, and I said this, I said this. I'm not casting stones. This was me for a long time. I'm not submitting to God's authority. I'm running the show. I'm running the vineyard. I'm not giving up control to Christ because I'm in charge. That's why people don't believe. It's not because of a lack of evidence. It's petulance. It's rebellion. It's defiance. And we must acknowledge that because of our rebellion, we justly deserve God's judgment. Just like in the parable. Remember what Jesus said, what will the owner of the vineyard do to those rebellious tenants? He will come and destroy them. And that's what we deserve. If you know your sin and you know the holiness of God, you know that our defiance and our rebellion, we deserve judgment. So if we're going to be right with God, we must seek his forgiveness in the only way that he has provided. And that's through faith in Jesus Christ. Giving our lives to Jesus. Trusting that Jesus has died the death that we deserved. He he died the death that we deserved. He took our place. That means it's gone. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's the only way that we can be right with God. And listen, I would just beg you, if you realize that you still want to run the vineyard of your own life, listen to me, hand over the controls of your life to Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Make a real commitment to turn from your sin Turn to faith in Jesus. Ask him to change you. Give your life to him today. As I said, people don't believe because of a lack of evidence. It's rebellion. It's defiance. But here's the kicker. Here's the real kicker. The same rebellion, the same defiance that we see in unbelievers, you know what? We see the same defiance in our own hearts as Christians. We see the same, even for those who are committed Christians, we see the same defiance against God. We see it in our hearts all day, every day. Half the time, even those of us who are Christians don't want the true God. We want God to be different than he is. Half the time, we don't want God to be holy. And we don't like the fact that he cares about how we live our lives. Half the time, we'd rather have a God who doesn't know what goes on in our hearts and minds. We don't like thinking about it. So we often ignore God because half the time we don't want the true and living God. Half the time, maybe probably 90% of the time, we still want to run the vineyard of our lives. And there's a part of us that wants to cast out the beloved son out of the vineyard of our lives. Even for those of us who are committed followers of Jesus Christ. And at our better moments, we realize really how disgusting our sin is. I can tell you, I'm so sick of my sin. (laughs) 
I'm so sick of my sin. But here's the encouraging part. If you've welcomed the Son of God into the vineyard of your life, if you've said to Jesus, Jesus, you're in charge of my life, not me. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and you rejoice that you get to be a servant in his vineyard, if that describes you, here's the wonderful thing. It means your heart has been changed. It means your heart has been changed deep within you, and it's been changed by God himself. Because you would not give up the control of the vineyard of your own life for a second if God had not done the work in you. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it means the Holy Spirit has come upon you in love, and he himself has changed you. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God's not satisfied by leaving you alone. He's not content to leave you as you are. I'll tell you what, this is the discouraging part. It's going to happen slowly. Oftentimes it feels like it's one step forward and two steps back. But God is faithful. And he will continue to work in your heart. He will change you. He will mold you into the person he wants you to be. He's going to grow you. It'll come in fits and starts. Young people, if you're a follower of Jesus, do not be discouraged if, by the sin that is in your own heart because you have a long road ahead of you. But don't be discouraged because God loves you and he's going to continue working and changing in you. I'm going to close with this. He's not going to allow us as believers to live our lives without him. He's with you. You're his child. He's never going to leave you. And in eternity... In eternity, in the resurrection life to come, in the vineyard of the new earth, you and I will know his love for us in a way we never thought possible, and we will be in perfect fellowship with him forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you, Lord. I do confess that I am so sick of my own sin. I'm so sick of my own defiance and rebellion. But I know you're working in me, and I know you're working in people in here, too. So we thank you for that. We praise you, Lord. You are, you are far too kind and forgiving, Lord. I don't understand. We do not understand the depths of your grace and mercy and love and kindness and forgiveness. But thank you, Lord, that you have worked in our hearts. And God, for people who have not bowed the knee to Jesus, who have not given up control of the vineyard, of their own lives, I just beg you that you'd work in their hearts and that they would see how glorious and beautiful and kind and loving you are. And they would not remain stuck in their own rebellion and defiance. So, Lord, we love you. Jesus, thank you that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you that you were cast out of the vineyard and killed, Lord. Because in that dying, you died in our place, in the place of your people. And you received in yourself all the judgment that deserved that we deserved you didn't deserve it we deserved it, and yet you took it upon yourself and so it's gone there's no judgment there's no condemnation hanging over your people anymore it's only love and grace so help us to rejoice in that god we do pray for change in our lives work in our hearts thank you that you don't leave us thank you are that you are going to continue working in us so we praise you lord help us this week to really begin for all of us really to begin giving even more control of aspects of our lives over to you, Lord. If there are areas in our lives that we're, we're still holding on to and, and wanting to be in charge of in that vineyard, Lord, help us to just release it and give it over to you and bow the knee and, and, and rejoice that we get to be servants in your vineyard. So we love you and praise you, Lord. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.